Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 458. It's titled, Dissecting Stock Returns, Financial Engineering or Genuine Growth? I recently read an article by columnist and associate editor of the Financial Times, Rana Faruhar. She used a phrase I hadn't seen before, financialized growth. We've discussed financialization in the past, which is the the increasing role of financial motives and markets, financial actors and institutions in domestic and international economies, and that's from a, a definitions from Gerald Epstein. But I hadn't really put that word financialization with the word growth. Ruhar referenced a paper that came out last summer by principal economist at the Federal Reserve Michael Smolyansky. The paper is titled The End of an Era, The Coming Long-Run Slowdown in Corporate Profit Growth and Stock Returns. He's predicting stock returns are going to be lower because the returns were boosted by an element of financialization, namely lower tax rates and lower interest rates. And, and we'll take a look to see, is that financialized growth? If, it, if the growth in this case, corporate profits was, was due to lower interest rates or lower tax rates. In the paper, Smolyansky writes, from 1989 to 2019, the S&P 500 index grew at an impressive real rate of 5.5% per year, excluding dividends. During the same period, the U.S. economy grew at a real GDP growth rate, GDP being the measure of the value that output produced. It grew at 2.5% per year. And in reading this and going through the analysis, I misinterpreted what the author said. I thought he said corporate profits grew at 5.5% per year, while the economy grew at 2.5%. It turns out that 5.5% was the price appreciation of the index, which was driven by corporate profits, which grew at 3.8% per year on a real basis. That does mean that corporate profits grew faster than the economy. That's not normal. It's unusual. Generally speaking, corporate earnings, either on a, on a nominal basis or a real basis, grow at the same rate of the economy. And I went to one of my favorite sources to, to confirm some of this data. It's Crestmont Research, founded by Ed Easterling. And he has some, some fantastic charts on many aspects of the stock market. In fact, Crestmont has a, a beautiful chart that shows the drivers uh, of stock returns that we use on Money for the Rest of Us. We use an asset camp, namely dividend yield, earnings growth, and the change in valuation. And they do this stacked bar chart that I'll link to in the notes that shows how much uh, of a decade's worth of return was driven by those three factors. 
And we'll see over the past three or four years, the 10-year returns, that most of the appreciation in the U.S. stock market has been driven by the change in valuation, stocks getting more expensive. We, we do show that historical attribution on asset camp, but it, w- it was fun to see it in this bar chart format to see, wow, in neon green, the expansion of the PE really elevates the return. So I, I looked at Crestmont Research, and, and he had interesting statistics. This is through the end of 2022. Since 1950, it's a 73-year period. Every year, except 2009 and 2020, has had positive nominal growth in the economy. This is before backing out inflation. Typically, when GDP is quoted, it's, it's quoted net of inflation. So on a real basis, and we can have a, a negative real GDP growth, but once inflation is added back, it could be positive. Only two times has there been negative nominal GDP growth, 2009 and 2020. There's been nine years, or 12% of the time, where real economic growth, excluding inflation, has been negative. 34% of the years, overall earnings for the SP 500 have been negative. In other words, earnings for companies across, like an, a US stock index, or a global stock index, they are more volatile than economic growth. Over time, they tend to track economic growth. And I'll, I'll share that with you, but it's not in lockstep. There's another paper that I found by Jason Shu, Jay Ritter, and a couple other authors where they looked at emerging market stocks. And the idea is, well, GDP growth in developing countries is higher, and that should equate to higher returns in the stock market. And they looked at 15 emerging markets and developed markets. They pointed out GDP was not a great predictor of stock returns because they don't work in lockstep. Over the long term, there is a correlation between economic growth and corporate profit growth and stock returns. But the cycles can differ. What those authors found is that what does correlate well with stock returns is Earnings growth on a per share basis and, and dividends per share. And, well, and we know that because that's the math that underlying stock returns, like we show on Asset Camp. We highlighted this point in the newsletter we sent out this month for Asset Camp subscribers, where we pointed out that here stock returns, global stocks, are up over 16% year to date. And we wanted to see what drove that. Was that being driven by earnings? Or was it being driven by the stock market getting more expensive? And we found it was because stocks got more expensive. Earnings declined 2.5% year-to-date for the global stock market. In a period where nominal GDP has actually increased, we have had an earnings decline, but we've seen valuations get more expensive. The price-to-earnings ratio of the MSCI All-Country World Index was 19.2 at the end of November 2023. It was 16.3 at the beginning of the year. And so the appreciation in the stock market, that 16% return, is because investors are willing to pay more for a dollar's worth of earnings. Now, that's not unusual because stock market investors are forward looking. If the consensus is that earnings will increase, the stock market will tend to appreciate first before the earnings catch up. And that's what we've seen this year. At the beginning of the year, the end of 2022, analysts, a bottom-up consensus of, of 
the global companies and what analysts expect they're going to earn. And then at the index level, they anticipated earnings would grow 3% in 2022. So far through November, they've fallen 2.5%. But if we look at what's the latest estimate of earnings going out the next year, analysts expect earnings, global earnings, to grow close to 10%. So with higher earnings expectations, that tends to lead to higher stock market returns, especially when some of the, the headwinds facing the stock market, such as higher interest rates, have eased off some because interest rates have fallen. Now, I wanted to confirm the data that Smolensky put in his piece because he was looking at, he was grabbing data, it's called CRISP data, it's the Center for Research and Security Pricing. He was looking at it on an aggregate basis. When we talk about the, the drivers of, of stock index returns, the earnings number there is, is earnings per share. From 1969, December, through the Q3, 2023, earnings per share for the MSCI USA stock index, which is very, very similar to the S&P 500 index. It's, it's a size-weighted index. Earnings per share has grown 6.3% per year. The same as nominal GDP growth over that time frame, 6.3%. What I found fascinating, though, is that nominal GDP growth grew faster from 1969 to 1989. That 20-year period, we had nominal GDP growth of 8.4% and earnings per share growth of 6.5%. So earnings per share didn't keep up with nominal GDP growth. And in Smolensky's paper, he, he goes back to 1962 through 1989. And then he looks at from 1989 through 2019. I took the analysis from 1989 through the, the third quarter of 2023. During that period, nominal GDP growth was 4.9% compounded versus 6.3% earnings growth. So earnings grew faster than GDP, which is the point of Smolensky's paper. He wants to understand why is it growing faster than GDP growth when typically it's either matched it or in the case of the 20-year period from 69 to 89, it was a little lower. His calculations is that, that 40% of that growth in real corporate profits from 1989 through 2019 was due to reductions in interest rates and corporate tax rates. And as proof of that, he looked at, well, how did earnings before interest and taxes grow for those two periods? From 1962 to 1989, it was 2.4% earnings before interest and tax growth. And from 1989 to 2019, it was 2.2%, about the same. Yet earnings grew faster than the economy. Now, the other influence was certainly lower interest rates, lower corporate tax rate, but there were more buybacks per share since 1989 than there was the prior period. On the other hand, the dividend yield has been lower since 1989 than it was prior, and, and that makes sense. If companies are deciding instead of paying dividends to take that cash and purchase shares, what that will do is it will lower the dividend yield and increase the earnings per share growth. And that's what happened. But ultimately, the earnings per share growth was also higher because of lower interest and taxes. And that's Smolensky's point that this, this is financial 
engineering, financialization, and the question is, can that continue going forward? Will they lower tax rates even further? Probably not, given the size of the deficit and the national debt. Will interest rates fall from where they are today? Potentially, but we had super low interest rates over most of that period since uh, 1989. But that's not all that's going on there. And this is where it can, it, it can be a challenge in comparing periods. The, the market is different now. The, the companies that make up the market are different. This is from an episode we did a few years ago that I'll link to in the show notes. I think it's episode 219, the, the incredibly shrinking stock market. And one of the things, and this was some work by Rene Stoltz, and he pointed out that companies expense a lot more of their expenses. So they're intangible assets. So it could be a research expense, or it could be so research and development. It could be purchasing something else that runs through the income statement. So it's, it's not capitalized. It's, so it's, it's not this asset added to the balance sheet. The companies, they can capitalize something. And so it's, it's an asset, and then it gets added to the balance sheet, and then it gets depreciated over, let's say, 25 years, or it could be bought and expensed that year. The second approach will lower the net income. And his point is, there, because there's more services-oriented businesses compared to manufacturing, that that has led to more expensing versus capitalizing those expenses. And that has also contributed to potentially lower earnings growth today. But we already saw earnings growth is higher. And so that is another argument, even though there's been some underlying change in the structure in terms of the type of companies, that those lower interest rates and lower tax rates did influence the higher earnings growth, the U.S. earnings per share growing faster than economic growth, which is an anomaly. Another paper that Stoltz did with Frederick Schlingemann, this is a, a working paper issued by the Bureau of Economic Research. There's this thing, well, publicly traded stocks aren't really representative of the economy. And we've done an episode that I'll link to. The, the stock market is not the economy. We know that the earnings cycle for the stock market doesn't follow GDP growth exactly, as we've discussed in this episode. It's more volatile. One of the things that they point out is that just because a stock has a very large market capitalization, so its size is big and looking at the number of shares outstanding times the price, that doesn't necessarily mean that company has the same impact on the economy. There isn't a, a one-to-one relationship, nor does it have a, a necessarily a big impact on employment. A, a company could be very, very large, for example, because it doesn't pay its workers very well, so it, its profits are higher. Now, that might not be sustainable, but the size of a company, as represented by the stock price, the market capitalization, Again, that's not necessarily connected to how it's contributing to economic growth. We're seeing that the number of publicly traded companies is actually shrinking. In 1996, there were about 8,000 firms that comprised the U.S. stock market. Now, it's less than 4,000, even though the economy is many times bigger. There are less publicly traded companies than there were. Now, partly that's because the economy, as I mentioned, is more service-oriented. And service-based companies tend to be smaller 
compared to manufacturing. So the, the nature of the stock market has changed. There are fewer manufacturing firms. In 1973, for example, manufacturing, that sector, employed the most workers of any sector in the U.S. But the overall number of manufacturing workers has declined 30% between 1973 and 2019, even though the economy, again, is much bigger, much bigger with more service-oriented companies. So, so what we're looking at then, as we think about it, is the growth in the stock market or stock prices, is it financial engineering? Or is there something underneath? Is it just because corporate tax rates are lower or interest is lower or just because people are bidding up the stock price? It's some of all of that. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Stocks have gotten more expensive over time, but if we go back to 1969, it doesn't have as great of impact as I would have thought. The price-to-earnings ratio of stocks in 1989 was 15.2. At the end of the third quarter, this is for U.S. stocks, the P.E. was 23.8. That contributed about 0.8 percentage points to the, the close to 10% return for U.S. stocks annualized over that period. Dividends contributed just about 3%, and the earnings per share growth, as we've mentioned, was 6.3% per year, in line with the overall growth of nominal GDP. Now, definitely, corporate tax rates influence that, lower interest rates influence that, at least the latter couple of decades, but that was just part of it. Underneath that, we had the type of company switching from fewer manufacturing, more service-oriented companies. And the overall number of publicly traded companies is less today 
than it was 20 or 30 years ago. One of the other drivers of that, though, is private equity firms that do leveraged buyouts. A partnership, for example, will borrow money, perhaps team with another buyout partnership, and they'll take a publicly traded company, buy up the shares, and take it private. In the year 2000, about 4% of U.S. corporate equity, that would be public and private, was companies owned by these leveraged buyout firms or partnerships. In 2021, it's about 20%. So we have way more leveraged buyouts than we did. And there was an article by Roger Karma in The Atlantic that was fairly negative toward leveraged buyout. Felt that having many more private companies outside of public scrutiny was, was a bad thing. Now, there can be some less attractive elements to that, but there's regulations that, that could overcome that. But one of the changes is back in 1997, there was, was a new law passed that allowed these private funds to raise an unlimited amount of capital from institutional investors. And, and 1997 was essentially was the peak in terms of the number of public companies outstanding. There has been a huge amount of private equity, leveraged buyouts. To do that, they take out massive amounts of debt. And then they try to make the company more efficient, often by laying off employees, but ideally by increasing productivity and growing revenue and earnings. The track record is mixed. Some partnerships are able to do that. Others do not. We do know that the number of companies then going public again is dropping. Many of these companies are staying private and being bought out by other private companies. The Atlantic article pointed out that private equity firms, their ownership of nursing homes has grown from $5 billion back in the year 2000 to $100 billion today. There's that potential conflict of interest in terms of, are they running these homes to the benefit of their patients versus trying to extract profits? The Atlantic article pointed to, to one study that said there were 22,500 premature nursing home deaths from 2005 to 2017 even before the pandemic hit, and, and they suggested it was just over-prescribing opioids, not having enough people, trained people, providing service. It, it's hard to say. That, that was one study, but they're giving private equity, leveraged buyouts, a negative report. I was interested to see whether taking on this additional debt by borrowing money to take a company private, that is a form of financial engineering. Does that lead to more bankruptcies? I found one study that looked at all the U.S.-based publicly traded companies that were acquired in leveraged buyouts between 1980 and 2006. There was 467 of them, and then they looked to see to what extent they went bankrupt. And they found that, and this, this number astounded me, about 20% of those leveraged buyouts, they went bankrupt within 10 years. 80% didn't, but th that's 20%. Whereas those in the control group, only 2% went bankrupt within the first 10 years. That financial engineering, taking on that debt to take the company private, doing whatever it does to reduce expenses, increase efficiency, 10 times more companies went bankrupt with these leveraged buyouts. Now it's been more difficult for private equity firms to take companies public because the market's not always receptive to it. It's been more difficult to 
to service a debt or even to borrow money to take companies private than it was. So one of the things that these leveraged buyout firms and other private equity firms are doing is they're doing what's called a net asset value loan, an NAV loan. They're basically going and borrowing money, not to fund a specific company or have that debt tied to a particular buyout, but just based on the value of the overall partnership itself. And then they're taking those funds and basically, in many cases, just sending them back to the limited partners. So instead of the traditional model where they they take a company private, they do their financial engineering, make it more efficient, then do an initial public offering and then distribute those proceeds to the limited partners. Because the IPO market is not as open as it was, they'll often just borrow money based on the value, the private valuation of those companies, and then distribute it to their limited partners. And what that does is it increases the return, the eternal rate of return of the partnership. It increases the, the amount of distributions to the paid-in capital, and that helps them market the next fund. One plus member that was, was asking us about this is, how rampant is, is this? And it's hard to get the data. It, it does appear bigger than it was in terms of how will that impact the long-term viability of, of leveraged buyouts. We just don't know yet. It's too early because this is just really starting to ramp up. But it's, it's another example of financial engineering, in this case, boosting the return growth of a private equity fund by borrowing money and then sending it back to the shareholders early, we could call it in order to boost the returns. Now, there's other ways this money could be used. Sometimes it actually is used to do an additional buyout or help fund a buyout. But it's another example that debt, borrowing money, can be used to boost returns in a form of financial engineering. Debt and the interest on that debt influences corporate profits. Lower interest rates have influenced how high corporate profits have been or the growth rate of those corporate profits. And tax rates certainly can impact that. So in conclusion, when we think about stock returns, public and private, it's a combination of financial engineering and genuine growth. It is ultimately, when we look at public stock returns, it's driven by those drivers that we look at at Money for the Rest of Us and on Asset Camp. It it is the cash flow, the dividend yields, the percent of profit paid out to shareholders. Are those profits growing? And it's based on what investors are paying for those profits. Profits grow across the economy for public companies, private companies, as the economy grows, as there are more workers. With more workers, and if those workers are becoming more productive in terms of what they're producing, that leads to higher economic growth, and that leads to higher stock returns, both public and private. Now, we've done episodes. We're not going to discuss it today. Is that growth good? How high quality is that growth? Is it growth due to actually adding value well-being and abundance to people's lives? Or is it growth due to, in, in the perverse case, harming people in some way? And every company has to decide that for itself, as does society as a whole. As investors, we're investing in the public stock market in many cases, generally index funds or ETFs. Some of us have exposure to private markets through leveraged buyout funds. The fact that earnings are more volatile and are disconnected a little bit, they track the overall economic cycle, but the the earnings are more volatile, and that leads to greater volatility for the stock market. And there's one other statistic I want to share from Crestmont Research. I'll link to it in the show notes. 
it's something that we've talked about that volatility of the stock market and of earnings lowers overall returns. And they go back to 1900 through 2022 and look at the average annual return for the stock market, and it's 7.4%. This is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. If we look at the compound return, the geometric return over time, the annualized return, it's 5.2%. It's lower because of volatility drag. It's lower because stock goes up, they lose money, then it has to earn more to recover, and the mathematics of compounding reduces the overall return. And so the reality is, we can't invest in the economy directly. If we could just earn GDP growth every year, that nominal GDP growth, we would have so much more wealth than we would just investing in the stock market because GDP growth on a nominal basis is less volatile than than earnings. And because earnings are more volatile, the stock market's more volatile, and that leads to a lower geometric return. And that's just the nature of investing. Those are some thoughts on genuine growth versus financial engineering. Hope you've enjoyed the episode. Thanks for listening. Did you know you may be missing some of the best money for the rest of us content? Our weekly insider's guide email newsletter goes beyond what we cover on podcast episodes and helps elevate your investment journey with information that works best in written or visual formats. With the insider's guide, you can discover actionable investing insights provided only to our newsletter subscribers. Unlock greater investing confidence with high-value snippets from our premium products, plus membership and asset camp. Access exclusive news, offers, and events you won't hear about anywhere else. And connect with the Money for the Rest of Us team and community. And when you sign up, we'll send you our exclusive investing checklist to help you invest with more confidence right away. The Insider's Guide is the best next step to get the most out of your investment journey. If you're not on the list, subscribe at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.